get me chasing rabbits every week. And so uh, this is going to take us an extra week. And I kind of got cut off right in the middle of some sub points. So we're going to pick up where we were. We're going over this idea of what does a pastor do anyway. And my one of my staff men said, well, uh, I don't know what a pastor is supposed to do, but I know what he does on the clock. So maybe you'll have me preach tonight and I can get up and tell, tell everyone how you just goof off all week. So I said, no, I'm going to leave you in the sound booth back here. And um, I'm going to I'm just going to preach the Bible. Amen. So um, uh, but uh, it's been neat to walk through the book. I've gotten a lot of positive feedback about what they've learned about the book of First Timothy. And I hope tonight will be no different. There's a section of the book that doesn't get talked about a lot, doesn't get covered a whole lot. And we're going to cover it tonight. Um, uh, we're going to look at uh, how the church is supposed to handle widows. Um, how many of you here know how the church is supposed to handle widows? There's a lot of rules in First Timothy for how a church is to do that. So we're going to look at that. And I've got to say, just like, it's just like Paul. He didn't pull any punches. He just kind of tells us how it is. And, and we'll get into some of the history as to why he was so straightforward about it. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to read from First Timothy chapter 5, uh, beginning in verse 1. And we'll read uh, down a few verses here. It says, verse 1, Rebuke not an elder, but entreat him as a father, and the younger men as brethren, the older women as mothers, the younger as sisters, with all purity. Honor widows that are widows indeed. But if any widow have children or nephews, let them learn first to show piety at home and to requite their parents, for that is good and acceptable before uh, God. Uh, look down with me at, at verse number uh, n- number nine there. It says, Let not a widow be taken into the number under three score years old or sixty years old, having been the wife of one man, well reported of for good works. If she have uh, brought up children, if she have lodged strangers, if she have washed the saints' feet, if she have received the afflicted, if she have diligently uh, followed every good work. And so uh, we're going to jump in tonight and continue our study on what, what a pastor does. Let's pray. I ask, Lord, tonight you'd help us as we understand your word. Uh, may it make sense to us. Uh, may it resonate in our hearts. And, Lord, give me clarity of uh, mind and speech. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So just a quick recap here. Uh, chapter by chapter, this is sort of a manual written from Paul to Timothy about what a pastor is supposed to do, how a pastor is supposed to operate. And uh, God was good enough to us pastors to give us three whole books in the Bible to kind of help us with that. And we have said uh, the last couple of weeks that while these books are not written directly to the church members, uh, it does give the church members an idea of what their pastor is supposed to be doing. And uh, it helps them to understand the philosophy uh, that their pastor is supposed to carry as he leads them. So it is quite insightful to see and understand. To use a sports analogy, yeah, you can be a lot more patient with the coach when you understand that the coach is simply doing his duty when he gets on you. So here to review uh, review here, we looked at uh, chapter 1, we looked at sound doctrine. Paul reminded Timothy of the importance of teaching sound doctrine to the church. Uh, chapter 2 was spiritual devotion. The church was to be devoted to prayer. The women of the church were to be devoted to propriety. I'm going to take just a moment here and and uh, and, and mention something within uh, point two, only because it's going to come back into tonight's 
sermon. And this is the point that the church of Ephesus, where Timothy was serving, had become a woman-ran church. The uh, women were... Uh, uh, running around causing all kinds of problems within the church. And there were women who were up trying to teach doctrine in the church. And the doctrine was all messed up. They were saying that you can't eat meat and you shouldn't get married. And so those doctrines were being sowed around the church. And uh, the women were doing a lot of the preaching and the men were doing a lot of the listening. And then you had another group of women, I believe a, a batch of young women, whose husbands had died and they were running around doing all kinds of, of things that were wrong. Uh, they were they were sleeping around with other men. Uh, uh, you kind of read between the lines of some of that in the chapter we're going to be looking at. They were fooling around. They were taking money from the church because they were widows, but they were young widows and they weren't serious about the work of the Lord. But they were taking from some sort of a pot there and so uh, a pot of money there. So Paul kind of came back around and said, hey, listen, the women, there's a spirit in which they need to carry themselves. And that is a spirit of modesty and that is a, a spirit of propriety within their ministries at the church. So that's what chapter two is about. Chapter three, we looked at leadership demands. We talked about the requirements for the pastor and the requirements for the deacons. We spent quite a bit of time on that last week. And then we began point four talking about pastoral duties. Chapters four and five talk about the duties of the pastor. We said, first, he is supposed to protect the flock. He's to protect the flock against any dangers, both from without or from within. Now, I'll tell you that uh, the greatest dangers that a pastor deals with are not dangers from without. They're dangers from within the church. People that get an idea of something that isn't right, uh, they, they take a doctrine and they'll move it just a little bit off, or they'll get the emphasis on something that isn't quite accurate or correct, and then they begin to drive a wedge between them and other church members. And let me just remind you, I hope everybody's listening to me right now, uh, the goal of the church is to be in one accord. You hear me? One accord. Now, uh, if you attend White Oak Baptist Church and the emphasis is put on certain things, then you need to get on board with where those emphases are put. If you can't get on board with where the emphases are put, then what are you doing? You're keeping the church away from being in one accord. Now, uh, you may not totally like the philosophy or the flavor of the church or the pulpit or the direction that it's going. And I would say to you that you either need to adapt and acclimate and get on board and be all in and do it and go all the way so that the church can be on board or in one accord. Or you need to go find a church that lines up with what you believe and how you feel philosophically and you need to go be in one accord with that church. But don't be in a church where you have your opinion and you're allowing your opinion to hinder the one accord of that church. White Oak Baptist Church will never reach the community at Broad unless we are in one accord. So part of the protecting the flock that the pastor does is helping get the church members in line with what we're going. Now, I'm not looking, me personally, there are pastors this way, I'm not one of them, I'm not looking for everyone to sing the exact same note to do everything the exact same way. I'm not looking for everyone to be in, uh, in unison that way. I'm more looking for harmony. You can have a different opinion on something, but boy, that can sound harmonious together, like a quartet singing four different notes, but they work 
well together. So protect the flock. We talked about pure living. The pastor is to live a life that's above reproach. He's to live a life that is uh, clean and right before God. Let her see persistence in ministry. Paul encouraged Timothy that it was going to get tough and he needed to keep on going and not throw in the towel and quit. And that brings us to the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5 tonight. Notice letter D, prerequisites for widows. Prerequisites for widows. So um, in America, we have a welfare system. We have Social Security. We have all kinds of government assistance. The point of the message tonight is not to talk about whether or not that's right or wrong. That's just the reality of where we live. And so our church is not really a place that hands out a lot of checks to poor people. We get called here probably two or three times a month where someone's asking for a handout. And I I remind them that we give spiritual help here. We don't give financial help here. And if we started giving financial help to everyone, there'd be a line down Main Street every day where people would have their handouts. So we're here to give out spiritual help. And we, we help church members from time to time that are faithful to church, that are maybe struggling to pay a light bill and that kind of thing. As the Lord leads, not, we're not always able to do that, but when we are, uh, we, we do that. But back then, they didn't have the government to lean on to just hand out money to people who were struggling. That wasn't there. That wasn't available. And so the church did a lot of that. In fact, if you go back into the book of Acts, you can see that a lot of people sold land all on their own. They sold big chunks of land and they gave the money to the church so that it could be redistributed to the poor. And people will say, well, look, pastor, socialism in the Bible. And the difference is that, no, they did it on their own. It wasn't forced They weren't taxed into giving money for the poor. They did it out of the benevolence of their heart. So the church of Ephesus, no doubt, like most churches, had a pot of money that was meant to help people who were struggling. And there was a group of widow ladies in this church. Many of them were young. We'll we'll see that by reading the passage in just a minute. Many of them were young. And what they were doing is they were taking a handout from the church And then they were running around in their laziness and their idleness, and they were creating a lot of problems uh, in their own lives and for the reputation of the church. And Paul said, I'm not having any of it. If you're a widow and you've got people that can support you and take care of you, you don't need to be taking a handout from the church. Uh, And that might sound harsh, but let's look at it together. Look back at chapter 5 and look at verse number 3. He says here, honor widows... That are widows indeed. So uh, Paul is telling Timothy, yes, there are widows that you need to give uh, uh, financial support to, but they need to truly be widows in every sense of that term. Not only uh, in the fact that of their marital status, but also in the way that uh, uh, they're financially structured. He goes on to qualify what a indeed widow is, or widow indeed. Look at verse 4. But if any widow, look, here's the first prerequisite, have children or nephews, let them learn first to show piety at home and to requite their parents, for that is good and acceptable before God. So if you are a widow and you have children or you have nephews, Those children and nephews ought to financially support that widow woman. It ought not be coming from the church. Look at verse number, uh, look at verse number five. Now she that is a widow indeed and desolate, no one to support her financially, trusteth in God and continueth in supplication and prayers 
day and night. So a woman who is deserving of this help from the church, she is she is truly desolate. She's got no one financially support her, but she's trusting in God. She continues in prayer, continues in supplication both day and night. Verse six. But she that liveth in pleasure is dead while she liveth. And these things uh, uh, give in charge that they may be blameless. Uh, but if any provide not for his own and especially for those of their faith uh, and is worse than an infidel. Now, that verse gets used a lot to talk about deadbeat dads and, and husbands who sit at home and, and, and don't go to work. And I think there's an application to be made there. But to be clear, verse eight is an inter- it, 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 within the context is saying if you have a mother who's older and you're not taking care of her, you are neglecting her need and you are worse than an infidel. That is truly what that verse means within the widow context here. Don't you neglect your aging mother. Can I just say this tonight? Unless it is an absolute, dire, uh, weird, awful circumstance where you cannot medically take care of your parent, you ought not put them in a nursing home. You ought to do everything you can to take care of your own parents at home. And I know the pushback on that is, but pastor, do you know how inconvenient that is on my life to take care of an aging parent, to have to bathe them and, 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 and put them in the car and take them to doctor's appointments and they're heavy and trying to move them around. And I would just tell you, your parents were inconvenienced by you for years when you were born. If they're inconveniencing you toward the end of their life, it's only fair. It's your turn. Don't let the shove them in the nursing home culture of 2018, the 21st century, be that of a Christian. Now, is there ever a time for a Christian to put their parents in a nursing home? I think in some extreme circumstances, it's okay. But boy, it better be extreme. It better be extreme. Um, uh, I think you ought to do everything you can to take care of them. Now, I'm going to tell you what the temptation is. Uh, Back in the 50s and 60s, really post-World War II, uh, moms had, had to work during World War II because dads were... Out on the battlefield, moms, Rosie Riveter, right, went to work and started uh, doing the manufacturing work. And women were empowered by being able to work in the workplace. And I don't think there's anything wrong with a woman working in the workplace. I'm not one of these people who say it's, it's always wrong. I think there are plenty of circumstances where it's fine for a woman to work outside the home. But, uh, but women were, were, were neglecting their first duty of raising children and shoving their kids in daycares. Now, many of these kids that were shoved in daycares have grown up. Since they were shoved in daycares, these same children are shoving their parents in nursing homes. Okay, whether or not you were shoved in a daycare as a baby, don't you shove your parents in a nursing home. You take care of them. Now, again, I know that there are times where medically you cannot take care of them, and they will die if they're living in your home, and you can extend their life by putting them in a nursing home. And if that's the case, then so be it. But it ought to be one of those circumstances that's very extreme. And uh, the Bible says in verse 8 that if you don't take care of your own, speaking of your, uh, your aging parents, specifically here your mother, you're worse than an infidel. Look at verse 9. Or that word infidel means someone who's lost or a pagan. Let not a widow be taken into the number under threescore years old. So uh, a woman who's under the age of 60 is not to be even considered as someone that qualified for this handout from the from the church. Having been the wife of one man, there's another requirement, well reported of for good works. Paul's laying it, 
laying the law down here. If she have brought up children, if she have lodged strangers, if she have washed the saints' feet, if she have uh, relieved the afflicted, if she have diligently followed every good work. So he's saying if a woman was dedicated to the Lord, dedicated to the work of the Lord, she raised her children, they're not around any longer to take care of her. She's a godly woman. She's over the age of 60. That is someone you financially support. Otherwise, uh, uh, then don't, uh, uh, don't, don't worry uh, with that sort of thing. Uh, look down at verse number 16. It says, If any man or woman that believe, uh, believeth hath widows, let them relieve them, and let the church let not the church be charged, that it may relieve them that are widows indeed. It may come to a place where you are in a tight spot financially. Here's what I would recommend. And here's what I always tell people that come to me and say, Pastor, we need help or I need help financially. I always say to them, the first requirement is that you go to your family and see if your family can pull together and help you. And then if they can't and you're a faithful attendee or member here, then the church will step up and help you. But what we find a lot of people do is they come running to the church. Oh, I can't pay my bills. Well, have you checked with your family first? And you see, th- this is this is right in Scripture that it's the right way to, to, to handle things. So let's take care of ourselves first within our families. And then beyond that, the church is here to help those that are struggling along. So prerequisites for widows, letter E, preference toward marriage. Preference toward marriage. Look at chapter number 5 and verse 14. Now, before we read the verse, let me just again remind you, there were a bunch of women whose husbands had died. We don't know why. But a, a slew of women in the church whose husbands had died, and they were running around and they were misbehaving. Don't forget that the city of Ephesus was filled with pagan temples, and the, the uh, priests in those temples were male and female prostitutes. That was common back then. So these women, history tells us, church history tells us, the church was paying their way. They're young, church is paying their way. They have all this idle time on their hand. You find the word pleasure in here. They're running around being pleasured and they're not behaving themselves. And Paul says, listen, my preference would be that these ladies, that they just get married. Let them get married a second time. Their husbands have died. Let them get married a second time. People will challenge and say, where where does the Bible say that a a man or a woman whose spouse has died can get remarried? This is the passage. Okay, It, It makes it very clear here. That if your spouse has died, you are free to remarry. Look at chapter 5 and verse number 14. I will therefore that the younger women marry, bear children, guide the house, give none occasion to the adversary to speak reproachfully. So clearly the adversary or Satan and those in the community had reason to be reproaching the church because these women were not married, and they were running around behaving in a way that was unseemly or uh, of bad behavior toward the Lord. Verse 15, For some are already turned aside after Satan. Their behavior had become so awful. So Paul says here, as he says in 1 Corinthians 7, it's better to get married than to burn. It's better to get married to burn than to burn, burn in your lust. If you have such as, and again, we've got... Uh, uh, adults in here except for my daughter. If you have such a drive, uh, if you have such a drive that you can't behave yourself, you need to get married. That's what the Bible says. 
And you say, well, pastor, but I want to get married. I can't find that right person. And that is a problem for me. Then I would say, get on your knees and ask God to make you celibate and to give you all of the control that he can give you until he carries you to that day where that you are able to get married. And I would say this, too. If you are in your 50s and 60s and you are single because you're a widow or you just never got married and you still have those desires, pray God sends you a spouse. I've seen it happen, and I think that would be great. Letter E, notice partiality denied. This is on a totally different topic, but look at chapter 5, verse 21. I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that thou observe these things without preferring one before another, doing nothing by partiality. What are the requirements of a pastor? What are the duties of a pastor? He's not to show partiality from one person to another. And so that, that means that it doesn't matter what color your skin is. You're supposed to be loved the same at White Oak Baptist Church and by every pastor of every good church in, in, in the world. Uh, it doesn't matter what the culture says. There's not supposed to be a showing of partiality. Aren't you glad that Jesus isn't partial? Don't you want to go to a church where the pastor isn't partial? Um, That's one of the reasons why I'm really, really glad that I don't know who gives what at this church. Because, uh, you know, let's say that you're giving and giving and giving and then you uh, hit a tough time in your life financially and you quit giving. And then you notice the pastor quit shaking your hand. You laugh. That happens at churches. That happens at churches. If if you quit giving and I'm not shaking your hand, it's I, I didn't know that you quit giving. Right? Maybe you just forgot to deodorize that morning. I don't know. But um, uh, I'm not even supposed to show partiality for that. Amen? Whether you stink or don't stink. But, uh, but, but look, it isn't just me that isn't supposed to show partiality. Christians aren't supposed to be partial. We are a church that runs uh, um, a shuttle bus currently into Bridgeport. We pick up some people that have a little bit more street intelligence than some suburbia folks do. I'm just going to talk plain about this right now, okay? Um, I have seen about half a dozen times in the last two years somebody come into this church and feel like they don't fit in this suburbia church. They'll visit a couple of times and they'll leave. My wife and I make an effort to connect with them. I'm thankful that we have worked bus routes in neighborhoods that are, uh, that are poor. We have worked with plenty of people who don't know what suburbia life is. They've spent their whole life living on government subsidies and in the projects. That's all they've known from birth to their adulthood. And they need the love of Jesus just like everybody else does. Let me just speak plain. You aren't any better than they are. You're not. And if you think you are, you need to get off your high horse. If you grew up in their circumstances, there's a good chance you would be living in the same place they live, have the same income they have, and have the same broken mentalities they have. And the fact that some of us treat them that way proves we have broken mentalities too, doesn't it? Now, it is natural to cling to, hang out with, spend time with, uh, a rush to the side of someone that we can relate with. That's human nature. 
But it takes a Christian to look at someone who's opposite of them in many ways and say, I'm going out of my way to show you extra love because I know that you need to feel accepted and loved here. Look, you're not a great Christian because you can walk up to a family who obviously is middle class or upper middle class and be nice to them. Do you want someone to pat you on the back and say, oh, good job for being friendly? Yeah, they look like you, talk like you, smell like you, act like you, and work where you work. Big deal. And I want you to be friendly to that crowd. And there are churches that aren't friendly to anyone they don't know. And so thank you for being friendly to them. But it takes a real Christian to step up and say, you know what? It's obvious you come from a neighborhood that's different than mine. Why don't you come sit next to me? Now, you're not going to say that to them. But in your mind, you're thinking, boy, I don't think I have a lot to relate with that person. They need me to love on them more than anybody else. Let's split the tables for a minute. Let's turn the tables. Let's say that you wandered into an inner city church. Okay? I know we have some people here uh, that are black. All right? I'm the least racist person maybe that's walking the planet. My wife's right here. She's from Peru. I'm in an interracial marriage. I spent a good chunk of my time in college doing my ministry work in inner city Chicago. I still have friends there, contacts there. Uh, some of my best friends in the world are black, okay? So uh, I'm not going to say anything that's, that's, that's insensitive toward race at all. But I just want to help the white folk here see it from the other way, okay? Let's say that you, this Sunday, decide to go to a black church in Bridgeport. You walk in the door. Do you think maybe you'd feel a little out of place? Do you think maybe it'd be nice to have someone come up and be nice to you? Make you break the ice and feel welcomed? Right? You come in and you're carrying your $300 purse. Nobody in there has a $300 purse. Right? Or very few do. And everyone's looking at you like, what are you doing here? You'd probably go once, feel uncomfortable, and never come back. Are you kind of getting the idea why we have some adult people visit from the city of Bridgeport? They come into our church once or twice. They might come back a second or third time because the pastor and his wife are nice to them and then never come back. Church, we've got to do our part to throw our arms around people that don't, don't necessarily fit in by the way they look and act. And make them feel loved here. You know what you find in the book of Acts? You find a bunch of diverse churches. You find churches that have young people and old people. Poor people and rich people. People of all sorts of ethnicities. Go to the church of Antioch. They were the most diverse church in the entire book of Acts. People of all kinds of race and color and creed and wealth classes. And they made it work. And you know what? They get great points they get a great score in the Bible as a church for it. And so, look, I would say about our church, we're not terrible about at this, but we've got plenty of room to improve. Can we all make a decision tonight that we're going to do our part, that when someone comes in the door and we may not, our flesh may not want to walk up and talk to them, that we're going to do it anyway? Can we make a decision tonight that we're going to do that? I'm kind of getting some looks out like, i got to think about this, Pastor. Can, can, we, can we do this? Can we decide we're not going to be partial uh, toward people? Uh, so uh, I know that was an uncomfortable thing, uncomfortable uh, point for me to make. 
uh, tonight, but uh, I fully believe everything I just said. And we've talked about some very difficult things in this book, but we need to be a church that is not shallow. It's shallow to look at someone and distance yourself because of their wealth class or, or their color or their age or anything else. That's shallow thinking. Christ died for all men. So let's love all men. All right. Number five. Satan's distractions. Now, Paul is going to finish the book telling Timothy, all right, you got your doctrine down. You're going to be devoted to ministry. You understand what the demands and requirements are for you and your deacons. You know what your duties are. Okay, now, uh, Timothy, Satan's going to hurl distraction at you. And don't fall to his distraction. Uh, A lot of times these verses we're going to look at are used to talk toward the church members. And I believe, again, there's great application to be made uh, for these church members. But let's keep in context and remember that the true interpretation of these verses is toward a pastor, a senior pastor. Uh, Letter A, notice, uh, learn contentment. Learn contentment. Paul is telling Timothy, look, Satan's going to try to distract you and take you out of the ministry. You need to learn to be content. Look at chapter 6, verse number 5. Perverse disputings of men of corrupt mind and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness from such withdraw thyself. But godliness with contentment is great gain for we brought nothing into this world and it is certain we can carry nothing out and having food and raiment. Let us be there with content. Let us be there with content. Paul is telling Timothy, if you're going to make it long term in the ministry, you're going to need to learn to be content. Content. Don't be a pastor that's looking to get your hands on as much money as possible. You be content. Um, He gives us the formula for contentment in verse 6. Godliness plus contentment equals great gain. Uh, I believe it was Ben Franklin that says, if you want what you have and have what you want, then uh, you're the richest man in the world. You want what you have and have what you want. Learn to be content. This is a lesson that God has had to teach my wife and I. This is a lesson that God has had to teach us as a married couple. Um, we have um, we've worked at many different ministries prior to here. And um, my first job uh, in the ministry was as a school teacher. I was paid $18,000 a year. That was my pay, $18,000 a year. Angela worked as a teacher's aide. She made $12,000 a year. And so we had to get by in one of the richest counties in America on $30,000 a year. That was tough. That was tough. And at times we found ourselves... A little discontent with the salary that we were making, the broken down car that we were driving, the ghetto apartment that we lived in. And so uh, then uh, after a couple of years of that, God really humbled us and said, if you're going to complain about that, I'm going to take that away and make you live on even less until you can be content about it. And then we smiled through the trial and said, okay, God, we're content. We're trying really hard to be content. You know, like the guy says in the story, I believe, help thou my unbelief. I'm content, help thou my discontentment, right? Um, God uh, opened the door and he allowed us to get a, a, a job as an assistant pastor in another church. And our pay uh, uh, about doubled from where it had been. 
uh, at least my pay doubled from where it had been. And uh, we were able to live a comfortable, you could call it a middle-class lifestyle. And, uh, and so life was great. We lived in a, the church's house. It was, uh, it was a four-bedroom, two-bathroom house with a finished-off basement. And we loved it there. Angela said, you are never allowed to go pastor because I never want to leave this house. I never want to leave this church. We are content. And I said, where there's church ministry, there is generally things getting shuffled around. I've been doing this my whole life because I was the son of an assistant pastor. And I know what it's like to get bounced around. I said, so just be prepared. When things are going really smooth, that's about the time. It's about time to go. And so sure enough, Pastor King resigned, and you all know the story. Another pastor came in, and he saw us out the door. And then we moved into a 650-square-foot apartment inside of a church building and uh, that was mice-infested. And if you know how my wife feels about mice, you know how terrible my life was, uh, how terrible that was. And God was saying, okay, I need, you to, I need to teach you how to be content again with Food and raiment and nothing else. And then God uh, took us back to Maryland. And my pay, um, uh, my pay at the last ministry that we were in was, again, $18,000 a year. That was my pay right before we got hired here. And our house was provided free of charge. So we were able to, to scrape by and make it work. Our children went to the Christian school there for free, so that helped. But uh, we had to learn contentment. In that last place we were at, God had us living in a house in a rough part of town, a low-income part of town, across the street from a liquor store. And it was embarrassing. I wasn't that embarrassed by it. I'm just going to speak, be, uh, just tell you straight here. My wife was embarrassed by it. She said, we can't have people at our house. They're going to have to park in front of the liquor store to come into our home. And we lived in this little tiny, this little tiny home. It was bigger than the 650-square-foot apartment, but it, it was still tiny. And, and, um, and I told my wife, I said, until we learn to be content in the spot we're in, there's no reason for God to give us any better. And so about the time we learn to be content there as a couple, uh, the Lord opened the door for us to come here. And God continues to teach us that lesson. You can't pastor long term until you've learned to be content uh, with a little. I'll tell you something else I've learned from this is that when you learn to be content with little Oftentimes, God blesses that contentment and he gives you some nicer things. But nice things come and go. And you can't, be, you can't let your happiness rest on how nice your things are. Um, if God were to destroy our house with a fire tonight, we were to move into a little two-bedroom apartment, we'd be okay. We've been there before. We made it. We smiled. And we'd be okay. Uh, nice things isn't the end game. God is the end game. Godliness is the end game. So learn contentment. Letter B, flee covetousness. Flee covetousness. Look down at verse number 9. But they that will be rich. Anybody here tonight? I'm going to say this. In America, we're all rich. You may drive a dilapidated car and live in an apartment and, uh, and think that you're not rich. You look at some of these other people that live in these poor countries, they would trade places with you in a heartbeat. Uh, verse 9, but they uh, uh, that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. 
But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and meekness. So flee covetousness. If you feel covetousness, the wanting something that you can't have creeping in your heart, boy, turn and run the other direction. Sometime back, there was a person who decided to donate some money to the church to buy the pastor a car. And um, I, I told Brother Owens no when it was brought to my attention. Uh, that was my knee-jerk response. No. No. I don't know how this will look. Uh, I need to check my own heart to make sure that I'm not being covetous about this. And so my wife and I endeavored a long time in prayer and got a lot of counsel before we decided to proceed forward with that. Uh, but uh, the, God knows my heart when I say this. I was driving a 1997 Honda Accord. Prior to that, I loved my car. I was content with my car. I was not looking for a new car. Uh, but when you learn to be content, God oftentimes will provide you with nicer and newer things as he knows you're going to need those things in time. Uh, or sometimes he even gives you things you, you, you like but didn't even need. Uh, but the goal there is to make sure that you flee Covetousness. Letter C, notice, charge the comfortable. Charge the comfortable. Turn over to chapter 6 and uh, verse number 17. Before we read the verse, let me ask a question tonight. Raise your hand if you think it's a sin to be rich. Good. Nobody raise their hand. Is it a sin to have nice things? It's not a sin. There's temptation that comes with it, isn't there? It's not a sin. All right? Um, nowhere in the Bible does it say it's a sin to be rich. It says it's a sin to love money. It's not a sin to be rich. Look at verse 17. Charge them that are rich in this world, that they be not high-minded. You know what those temptations are? Right there. High-minded. Nor trust in uncertain riches... But in the living God, which giveth us richly all things to enjoy. So what am I supposed to do to the church here? This is a rich church, right? If I were to take you to Peru, where my wife's from, and I were to take you into the local Baptist church around the corner from her house, you know what their church looks like? It's a, it's a cement block building with a cement floor and wooden benches. When I visited Peru, um, her family attended that church. Some of her family attended that church. And they had a computer in their house with dial-up internet. And they said, we want to see where you go to church. Take us to your webpage. And I opened up the webpage after I had just visited their church. And there was the beautiful lobby of that church. And it was run down at the time. It was run down even worse than ours is right now. And to be honest with you, I felt a little embarrassed that our lobby was so nice. Now... I don't think it's a sin to have a nice lobby. We're getting ready to renovate ours in a few months. I don't think there's anything simple about that. I think your buildings need to be up to par to the community that you live in. I think that pleases the Lord. When, you're, when your building becomes an eyesore to the community, that's a problem. So we need to keep our facilities looking nice, not for the sake of having nice facilities, but so that we can adequately reach the community. Uh, but the Bible says here that we are to... We, that I am to charge you that are rich or comfortable. 
What am I supposed to charge you in? That you're not high-minded. Did I not just do that a few minutes ago? Don't be a rich snob. Don't treat people different because they're on welfare. Love them. Love them. Don't treat people different than, than, uh, than, than uh, because they're different than you. It says here that I'm to do that. It says here that pastors are to remind you not to trust in your uncertain riches. Hey, money is easy come, easy go, is it not? Comes quick, goes quick. Don't trust it. Trust the Lord. Don't trust your money. Don't look at your bank account to find security. Find your security in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then verse 19 says that I am to challenge you not to lay up money here on earth, but to lay it up in heaven. Look there again. Laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. So you are to lay up your treasure in heaven, not just treasures on earth. Don't be so consumed with being rich on earth that you forego laying up your treasures in heaven. Um, I would just challenge you with this uh, as we close tonight. Every penny that I own is not mine, it's the Lord's. God ought to be able to move in my heart and say, I want you to give this inordinate amount of money to me. And I ought to say, yes, sir. This is not mine, it's yours. Um, you've been going here long enough, or you've been, I've been here now almost two and a half years. You know that I'm not a high-pressure money guy. I don't get up and say, hey, we're going to have a give-it-all Sunday. Next, next week, I want everybody to give their entire paycheck to the Lord. That's not my style. I know pastors that have done that. I, I don't think that's wise. I know pastors that have done that. But if God moved in your heart and said, give your next paycheck to the Lord, I'm going to take care of you, walk by faith. Is your heart tender enough to do that? Is it? Um, I'm not going to ask you to do that. At least I'm not planning to anytime soon. But if God were to, you ought to be willing to do it. Why? Because he owns the money of the world. He entrusts some of it to you. And if he takes it away from you, he can replace it pretty quick and easy. So um, challenge those that are comfortable. Challenge those that are rich. And uh, that that you not uh, rely on that money. That you remember that money belongs to the Lord. And that we're to use it for his, his glory and his honor. Amen? Hope the book of 1 Timothy has challenged you and encouraged you. And let's continue to be a church that is uh, in honor, preferring one another, walking lockstep in harmony, in one accord, making a difference in the Stratford community and beyond. Let's stand to be dismissed. Glad you're all here tonight. I hope this has been an encouragement to you tonight and uh, helps you to get through the rest of your work week. Let's be dismissed with prayer. Brother Mike Monks, you can close us in prayer, please.